0: latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Podcast, where we interview academics and entrepreneurs at the front lines of digital health. My name is Dr. Hamid Gumbari, and I am the Deputy Editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. If you like this episode and would like to support our work, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review, and visit our website, the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. welcome to the latest episode of the cardiovascular digital health podcast my guest today is uh, dr jeffrey olgin from uh, ucsf and we're here to talk about a very interesting and important study published in the heart rhythm journal called validation of an algorithm for continuous monitoring of atrial fibrillation using a consumer smartwatch welcome jeff thanks amit glad to be here i'm really excited to talk about this paper because it is one of those topics that we keep on hearing about, but there hasn't been a lot of really vigorous scientific studies like this one conducted and published. So I'm excited to talk about the details of this study with you. Uh, Jeff, if you could um, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, your research interest, where you are and why why tackle this problem.
1: Yeah, so um, my... Uh... My research career has been um, multifaceted. I, you know, I run a arrhythmia mechanisms lab where we, you know, use mouse models and molecular biology stuff, and um, also run a clinical trials um, group here. And um, over the last ten years, we've, um, you know, taken the clinical trials side of things and. Um, developed digital tools for running more efficient trials, remote trials. Um, uh, We developed a healthy heart study about 10 years ago um, to explore and develop those kinds of tools. And um, in the process of that, got very interested in digital health and technology to help uh, us in electrophysiology um, manage patients better. Uh, we do a lot of other stuff outside of electrophysiology, but obviously, since I follow a lot of these patients, um, and that's my my main interest. I have a keen keen interest in those things related to
0: to EP. That's terrific. Um, you definitely have a very diverse background that makes you particularly good at doing this kind of work. Um, so, um, this paper, can you tell us a little bit about the general aims of this paper?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, we've we've developed a number of approaches to trying to use consumer devices to monitor AFib. We, um, I think six years ago, maybe five years ago, published a, a paper in JAMA Cardiology where we used a commercial device, an Apple Watch, to, to predict AFib using some machine learning tools. This was before the Apple Heart Study and, and all of those things. Um, but what was challenging with those approaches is we didn't get, Apple didn't actually give us access to the raw PPG stuff. So um, we were doing you know, kind of derivations of, of the signal to, to do that. Um, but we've also developed some approaches of using signal processing. And again, this came out of a lot of my work from my animal lab and mapping studies um, where you can detect AFib um, pretty quickly uh, using some novel signal processing approaches which have, you know, very high specificity and sensitivity on on the surface of it, and don't require, you know, the large compute power for machine learning, and um, potentially has better performance than machine learning because you it's not the black box that machine learning has. So, um, in the process of developing those tools, we needed to find a way to record the ppgs in a way that we actually had access to the raw signals and so um, that was uh, where we approached uh, the partner we used in this study samsung to to develop this um, and really test it vigorously as you say there's really been no rigorous test of the performance of these algorithms um, where you really have robust measures of sensitivity and specificity Um, and, um, part of the impetus for developing the algorithm we used was to try to really get at, um, could we detect an episode of AFib as short as five minutes, as short as 15 minutes, as short as one hour, um, as opposed to the current tools that are out there that are even on, that are either on demand or they take, you know, a couple of looks during the day and you have no idea how long the episode really is going for. Um, again, really trying to get as close as we can to an EKG patch monitor that we typically use or, or a loop recorder to measure these things. So, you know, is there a tool that's as close to continuous EKG monitor that we can get and really accurately measure AF burden what's the shortest episode of AFib we can detect accurately and that kind of stuff.
0: That's great. Um, As part of doing this study, you have a very novel digital platform. Um, Can you give our our, our audience a little bit of an insight into what that is and how you actually utilize that to conduct these kind of studies?
1: Yeah. So I mentioned the healthy heart study um, uh, a few minutes ago and, You know, this was a fully digital, fully remote cohort that we developed and all the participants now numbering about 350,000 in size are all followed remotely. and, um, And we set it up in a way that we can also contact them for other studies so that we can very rapidly enroll people. Um, and then about six years ago, the NIH put out a call for an app, for a, applications for sites to create a digital platform for research studies to use, and we applied and were awarded it. And so with our background and, and previous platform and this funding from the NIH, we built the Eureka Research Platform, which is basically a universal digital platform for conducting remote or in-person or hybrid um, digitally enabled studies. Um, We, and not, not just our studies, but other researchers that come in either through the NIH or through PCORI or industry grants. We have about 60 studies running on the platform. Um, uh, We have almost a half a million participants across those studies Um, And they range from, you know, a fair amount of cardiovascular studies to diabetes studies to uh, cancer studies. Um, And um, it just leverages an infrastructure that we've built that can um, deploy these studies very quickly. We can get a study up and running in a matter of weeks or months, as opposed to, you know, having to hire a developer and a designer to design the study and all that kind of stuff. We have a single app that we can deploy studies onto in targeted ways, um, and it really accelerates um, research. What we were um, kind of stuck with with the study that we're referring to here, the PPG study, is that we had started this study, started to design the study before COVID hit, and we were actually planning on enrolling people in person in our clinics uh, over a period of a couple of months. And then um, just before we were getting ready to enroll, um, COVID hit. And like most institutions, our, our in-person research was shut down. So we very quickly pivoted to doing this remotely and um, essentially leveraged our existing people in on the platform who we knew had AFib invited them to participate and conducted the entire study remotely and finished enrollment. in I think in like three or four weeks Um, and then finished the whole study over the course of, I think three or four months. Um, And, you know, we did this at a time where we couldn't hire coordinators, research coordinators because of the pandemic and because of, Again, like most most institutions, were hiring freezes, um, and um, you know, again, we were able to leverage this platform to do this efficiently and quickly, and and get the data data out pretty quickly.
0: It's really incredible um, that you can do this so quickly, such high efficiency, and conduct such a high quality study. Um, it's definitely a testament to to you and your team. Um, so I, I maybe we could start a little bit talking about the kind of patients that you recruited into study, who were these patients and yeah what kind of devices were they given when they were enrolled into your study?
1: Yeah, the, the study was pretty straightforward. Again, it was designed to um, very rigorously determine the test characteristics of, of the algorithm. Um, and we had already done the, the uh, pilot work, which is also reported in this, to fine tune the algorithm and sort of understand, um, you know, roughly what the test characteristics would be. Um, we then uh, basically looked at all of our healthy heart participants, all of those that said that they had AFib. We contacted them through the app, which is again one of the the way we developed this is we use this as a cohort. For randomized trials or other validation tests that we do to be able to do quickly, um, we contacted them and you know within a week we had i think our enrollment goal was something like two hundred and forty um, and within a week we had three times that, and we stopped sending out invitations and just started sending out study kits to to those people that responded and um the consent and data collection was all done within the Eureka app. Um, we mailed them uh, a study kit that included a uh, Samsung smartwatch, a um, Android phone for pairing and collecting the data, and a uh, uh, two Biotel patches that they wore for four weeks, uh, and then of course uh, return envelopes for them to send it back. Uh, And then through our app, um, all of the data from the watch was streamed um, back to our data center in real time. Uh, So we collected all the accelerometry data, all of the PPG data, um, and all the EKG data from from the watch. Um, And um, since everything was time synchronized with the BioTel patch, uh, we could then align all of our signals um, you know on a minute by minute second by second basis um, to, to do the analysis that we ultimately did
0: so this um, algorithm that you had developed runs on the PPG signal and gives you a classification for a pre-specified five minute period of time from what I understand can you um, describe the algorithm how it works um, yeah,
1: so um, there, there's a couple of generalized problems with PPG signals on a, on a, a living human being wearing it on their wrist. The, the biggest issue uh, is just artifact, um, motion artifact from people walking around, um, motion artifact from the watch being worn too loosely, um etc., which is why existing algorithms rely on only recording when the wearer is completely still and for long periods of time. So we wanted to try to develop an algorithm that um uh could accurately make uh decisions um even if the signal were not a hundred percent pristine. So um there's a, a multi-step process for um, assessing the quality of the PPG signal on a minute-by-minute basis um, and it uses a combination of the intrinsic PPG signal, um, you know any immediate offsets and, and signal noise ratio, uh, as well as the accelerometer to see if there's movement so just as a practical example. Um, if there's no movement detected and the signal quality is very, very poor, then that segment has a higher likelihood of being rejected from the process because um, the person's not moving yet the signal is pretty poor. Um, in contrast, if the signal is poor but there's movement, um, there's some adjustments to the signal that can be made to make it a little more usable um, whether that be just look for a longer period of time or some um, gain uh, that's done to, to address it. So that's sort of the first step is just sort of trying to assess on a minute by minute basis, whether a particular segment of the signal is analyzable or not. Um, and I, I don't have the paper in front of me, so I don't remember, but it was something like um, 75% of the signals over the entire recording period were, were analyzable. Um, then this, the second level is the algorithm used to detect AFib, to determine AFib. And um, as you can imagine, if you use just simple RR, like single RR or short number of RRs, um, that's very prone to error if you're just using um you know, a relatively noisy signal. Um, but if you use a variety of signal processing uh, approaches, such as a distribution of the RR plus things like entropy and those kinds of things, um, you can uh, better separate out um, segments that are erroneous, non-physiologic, et cetera. Um, and so that's what we did. We had sort of a tiered approach to, um, making decisions. Um, for example, with pristine levels, the distribution of RR carried more weight than entropy did. But in, in segments where, um, the signal quality was a little bit poorer, then entropy carried a little more weight. Um, and then we just developed a, an empiric, um, Uh, algorithm that weighs all of those things together to come up with the the one particular algorithm that we used and we designed it to be able to be flexible enough um, to deal with um, particular patient populations where you might want a higher sensitivity than specificity or a higher specificity than sensitivity by making these, you know, basically five minute, overlapping window calls that can then be con- concatenated. So for example, if you really have, if you have a patient population where you're, you, they have a known diagnosis of AFib, right? So a higher pretest probability. And really what you're interested in is capturing as many episodes as possible. Um, you might forego specificity a little bit and rely on a shorter window of that, right? So you'd say, okay, well, if, if one out of two of these five minute episodes are AFib, we're going to say the person's in AFib. Whereas in a screening application where the, the prevalence of AFib is lower, you're going to want something with a very high specificity to avoid over notification, false positives, et cetera. So in those situations, you might say, okay, over thirty minutes for a new diagnosis, we're going to require that you know six or five out of six of those five-minute episodes have to be determined to be AFib to, to make a call. So it's a very tunable algorithm. The way we developed it um, to, to be used, and you'll see in again, I can't remember the exact figure, but um, in one of the figures, we have um, the um, you know what the what the performance is uh, based on each of those um, cut points.
0: Yeah, for those of you who are following along, it's Table Two in um, the paper. Um, it's so the way you're adjusting. Table, table and
1: Two and Figure Four. Figure Four. Figure four. That's good. That cool. Figure Four shows the the performance with um, sort of increasing um, uh, number of five minute epochs.
0: It's interesting approach because you're uh, tuning the the performance of the algorithm based on stacking the intervals or how many numbers that you having, which is an interesting approach um, for, um, you know, adjusting the sensitivity and specificity for different pop- populations. Uh, but for this particular paper, you use the five-minute interval to do your classifications, correct? We use the
1: five-minute um, period as the the base. And then, you'll again, you'll see in figure four here, figure 4a, um, it shows you what the performance is as you increase the duration of that detection. So... Um, uh, again, you, you if you go to um, really the optimal was I think uh, six out of seven. Uh, you didn't get much gain after. Uh, I'm sorry, after five out of six, um, you get a, a specificity of 99.8 percent, and sensitivity only drops down to 82 um, you know, um, uh, percent. So I don't know that found that curve very interesting is that there's a point of of optimal specificity and sensitivity for screening purposes um but if you really do want um more monitoring rather than screening you could go with two out of three five minute episodes and your specificity drops down to 98.9 which you know is not terrible in a population where you know they have afib and your sensitivity now goes up to ninety-one percent.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, just um, maybe speaking of some of the interesting findings that you had. So, for basically for every five minute uh, interval, using the PPG signal, you're getting an output, and the output is AF, no AF, and uncertain. So, what are the um, Once that classification is performed, what are the next steps that uh, were recommended or were prompted by the the
1: device? Yeah, so what we wanted to do to try to validate um, both the the in-the-moment algorithm but also the way these things are generally used or should be used is that the PPG should prompt a more specific test like an EKG. So the way we set this up was that after they met that threshold, they were delivered an alert that asked them to um, put their fingers on the watch to record an onboard single lead ECG. And then that single lead ECG had its own separate um, uh, validated algorithm to uh, make a decision about whether that EKG was AFib, normal, or undetermined. And then and and um, also in table two, uh, we then looked at the performance of that whole sequence um, you know does adding an EKG add um, specificity to the diagnosis um, and it does it, it brought up the um, specificity to uh, let's see here to uh, to hundred percent basically. Um, with a single EKG, it brought it up to 99.7. And uh, with two EKGs um, within an hour, it brought it up to 100% specificity.
0: Which is really how you would want to use a device like this, right? Yeah. You get, a, you get so, a prompt and then you get an ECG. And, and hopefully that ECG could tell you that a patient has AF or not. Um, so there was like a significant number of um, ECGs that were indeterminate um so you know you get a prompt you know not everybody is going to perform the ecg when they get a prompt you know a fraction of those people will do the ecg and then some of those ecgs are you know you can't make you know they're indeterminate so can you maybe talk about a little bit about yeah, the, quality so the, of
1: the the indeterminate one is a is an interesting classification because most people who hear that say well the 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 data was not of high enough quality to determine what the rhythm was, or the, the rhythm was was weird enough that it wasn't sinus and it wasn't AFib. Um, and um it's more complicated than that, as we put in the paper. For um for a variety of reasons, which I'll go to in a second. Um and, and Apple does this and all of the the ekg algorithms consumer grade ekg algorithms out there do this that there are cutoffs for rate as well so if the rate is below 50 it's not going to make a diagnosis of afib even if it is afib because it's bradycardia and um it gets both confusing from an algorithmic standpoint and um potentially dangerous from a liability standpoint to have an automated algorithm misdiagnose um, third degree heart block as AFib, for example, or, you know, something like that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's a high rate cutoff because again, you wouldn't want to misdiagnose VT um, there. So the the consumer approach to that is to ignore those two extremes and call it indeterminate. Uh, and again, that, the Apple algorithm is exactly the same. The, the Fitbit algorithm will be the same. AliveCore is the same, uh, or was. I don't know if it still is, but it, it used to be similar. Um, so indeterminate is a is a grab bag term of a rhythm that was not indistinguishable from AFib or sinus rhythm and rates that were too high and too low. Um, and, um, I can't remember if we put this in the paper or not, but the majority of those indeterminants were due to rate, not due to quality.
0: That's interesting. Um, great. Uh, So, you know, the, the, the algorithm performed very well. Um, so you made some choices about the classifications here. Um, you, the, the two categories were AFib and sinus rhythm, and then in, in the, um, supplementary material you have non-AFIB. So, what, what were, what, why did you choose those categories, and what is the difference between them?
1: So, what we wanted to do with that analysis was to figure out um, uh, what was leading to false, either false positives or false negatives on the call, right? So. Um, how does it perform in patients who are in sinus rhythm with lots of PACs or lots of PVCs, or, for example, or short runs of ATAC? Um, and so that was what was included in that analysis. That's what we call non-AFIB, non-sinus.
0: So, so that the non-AFIB includes all rhythms, like, like HO flutter, for example, attack, exactly, card. Exactly, exactly. Because,
1: again, remember the, the, the algorithm – is really designed specifically to pick up AFib, okay. not to diagnose PPGs or or flutter. Flutter, as you can imagine, will be indistinguishable from sinus rhythm or sinus tack on a PPG, since the pulse is regular, right? The PPG is just a measure of the pulse, right? It's 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 as if you were diagnosing AFib by just putting your finger on the radial pulse.
0: Um, a lot of studies kind of lump some atrial flutter and fib together. But in this study, you've kind of, the atrial flutter would fall into the non-afib rhythms. from so what I understand, correct? That's right. That's right. Um, and, and, you know, we won't go to all the details about the watch performance, but the watch performance for on, a, on an algorithm level for every five minutes was with a sensitivity of 87 0.8 and specificity of 97 point four which is you know tremendous performance probably best in class for what I'm seeing it's a um, really f- phenomenal work there um, so I want to maybe spend a little bit of time you know talking about um, in the performance in particular subgroups in the subgroups that I wanted to kind of get your sense on are the subgroups that we you know think about when it comes to PPG um, so first one is um, you know what was your experience and what are your thoughts about how ppg algorithm for detection of af performs in different fitzpatrick scales um, and then uh, um, maybe if you could comment uh, also on how you think this performance will vary based on the burden of af
1: yeah so um, both good questions um and there's been a lot of discussion about the the skin tone Effect on PPGs. And um, fortunately, there's been a lot of work on it as well, a lot of research on it. And it turns out it actually works well across the skin tones. Um, We didn't put this in this paper, but the PPG algorithm, um, the the PPG detection, not the algorithm, but the detection of RR intervals. performs equally well across skin tones um, in in this particular watch. And I think if I remember right, the Apple heart study did a similar analysis across um, skin tones and and found similarly that it, that it um, works well. Um, Because again, all, all your, all you need to do is just to detect a, Peak of the pulse, right? You just need to say, "Up, oh, this is a pulse. This is a pulse. This is a pulse." Um, so it generally works pretty well across um, the skin skin tones that that uh, have been tested. Um, and then I forgot your second question. Oh, AF uh, burden,
0: burden, yeah,
1: yeah. So that was one of the one of the goals we wanted to to do is develop an algorithm that approximated um, AF burden and um, to pull up the paper again to see which um, which figure it is. But we reported um, the performance of the algorithm against the burden determined by the patch EKGs, figure 5. Um, and um, it, it actually worked quite well um, across the spectrum. The the curve the correlation line um is a little steeper than a, a complete line of unity because at the high burden rates the ppg underestimates the burden and you you can imagine why that is right if you're using a 5 minute episode to detect afib and they're in afib all the time you're going to have some of those 5 minute episodes that are going to be um either um undiagnosed, un, you know, non-diagnostic or, or miss, uh, misclassified. Um, so, um, just looking at the curve here, uh, we do well out to like 95% AF burden and then ev- everybody who has 95% plus AF burden on EKG had essentially, um, I'm sorry, I had that backwards. Um, people who a portion of the people who are in AFib all the time have AF burdens of like 95% to hundred percent on PPG. So we're off by about 5% in that population, five to 10% in that population. One can argue whether that's meaningful or not. Um, but that that's where it falls down when you, you know, have such a high right. You imagine for, for a 24 hour period, the number of five-minute episodes that are AFib that might possibly be misdiagnosed, and that'll throw it off a little bit.
0: Yeah, you can only imagine the clinical utility of a watch that can accurately predict uh, the burden of AF. I think lots of you know young investigators are listening to this and probably super excited about uh, all the you know future work that they could do in this area. Um, you know, as a clinician as a practicing electrophysiologist, um one of our concerns is the number of false positives with these uh, devices, right? We know that the, probably you know on a subject level, sensitivity and specificity are pretty good. you know, if you have a f with a long enough uh, monitoring period, we're probably going to catch it using a device like this with, you know, a performance like you describe in the paper. Uh, but the false positive rates are high, and you know, if if we do and pro- we do extend the monitoring period beyond, you know, the twenty eight days like this study, it's conceivable that almost everybody will have a false positive alert. Um, can you give me your thoughts about that and? maybe alleviate some of my concerns about you know being bombarded by calls about yeah no
1: i too am bombarded by calls of you know people who have a consumer device and and i think it is a problem and um, one of the reasons we um develop the algorithm the way we did and we talked a little bit about this earlier is that you can tune it to to the right the right population um, and then the other important distinction is the EKG confirmation, right? So, um, and then I think the third point um, that often goes um, un, untalked about in the screening process in, the, in these screening studies is that it really needs to be applied to the right population. Like why on earth would you screen 30 year olds without any other comorbidities for AFib, for asymptomatic AFib. Do you have
0: any, do you have any specific studies in mind? (laughs) What's that? Do you have any specific studies in mind you are referring to? Of course not.
1: Of course not. But but you or I are not going to do anything with that information. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the truth is that because of their age and, and lack of comorbid uh, cardiovascular disease or other disease, their prevalence of AFib is so low that you're way more likely to have a false positive. So, um, you know, if, if I were, if I were King, I would say, well, this algorithm gets turned off in in everybody who is not at risk or in whom treatment would be, would be affected by it, uh, or don't have symptoms. Um, and then again, sort of referring back up to that, that, uh, Figure four, if you are going to screen the right population, you just extend out the number of, of required criteria to make the, the, the decision and then have it be confirmed on an EKG before they contact their physician. And that, that should reduce the false positive rates, right? A fair amount, right? If you do it in the right population and you you know, make the specificity as close to 100% as possible, right? So our specificity of the whole thing, of taking it out to multiple, um, you know, seven out of eight or six out of eight or five out of six episodes and requiring EKG is really close to 100%. This
0: The specificity. I mean, using it in the right population. It's definitely the first step, um, right. and then, you know, tuning the algorithm the way you have done it as well. And then maybe having systems in place to kind of deal with this ECG deluge, you know, having companies or, you know, institutions read them and then process them. Like like very similar to what we do now with patch ECGs. We probably have to develop very similar systems in place to to help the healthcare professionals.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the other the other problem, of course, is that um, the output from the currently available commercial devices are not very helpful to physicians. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in fact, the the follow on study to this um, is to you know assess how this impacts healthcare utilization, which is the next the next study that needs to be done. Like how are these things really affecting healthcare utilization? Are people putting on, being put on acts appropriately, inappropriately? Are people, you know, seeking medical care for false positives? How often does that actually happen where they seek medical care? Does it affect their treatment or not affect their treatment? Um, And can, you know, reports and tools that are helpful to the physician uh, from these devices, impact treatment or appropriate non-treatment, um, you know, when possible. Those are the studies that need to be done.
0: Definitely, exciting time for to be in this field for sure. Um, I want to kind of, you know, just did we get to the section of what I call the uh, Jeffrey Olgen production function? So Jeff, you, you know, you you're you were uh, Busy clinician, you have a research lab. You have an animal. Um, you do animal studies. You have digital health studies. In your spare time, you build a digital health platform. So, can you m- maybe tell me how you do it? What is you know? How do you stay so productive?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I when people ask me like you know what was your day look like, or, or how do you split your time, you know, my answer is I spend know 50% doing clinical work 50% doing research and 50% uh, you know administratively as the the division chief Um, uh, you know it um, it's a hard question to answer because when I look back on it it doesn't look like it's that you know that challenging I think part of it is Surrounding yourself with people who are really good and really fun to work with and collaborate um, well—I think that's a really important part of it. I think being in an environment that's supportive of, you know, academic pursuits and and research and you know, high-level clinical work um, helps. Um, But you know, at the end of the day, this is a team. It's a team sport, not an individual sport, and. Um I'm, you know, thankful that I've got, you know, incredible colleagues and collaborators and co-PIs like Greg Marcus and Mark Fletcher and, you know, other people working on these projects that, um, you know, make it all work.
0: Do you do your writing on separate days and, and then your clinical work?
1: So I'm so... Okay, so now you're getting into the the details. So uh, people who know me or work with me will tell me tell you that I am like hyper efficient. Um, uh, I um, you know have pretty much everything scheduled. I live by my calendar. I you know have my own personal compulsive processes for getting stuff done. Like um, you know my my email in basket is emptied, um, every day. And I, I do it in a way that I only touch an email once. So it, one of three things happened to it. It either gets, or one of four things, it either gets deleted because it's, I, I don't need to know about it or it's, you know, spam. Um, it gets moved to a completed folder because somebody just sent it to me for information purposes and I don't need to do anything with it. And I don't ever respond. I can respond quickly in which case I, I quickly respond when I open it and read it or it requires more thought and effort on my part. And it goes to a to-do list. Um, And it gets parked in a to-do list that I look at every morning to figure out like, okay, what, what do I need to, to get done? What then, is your
0: to do? Do you use a to do list software or just like right, a to-do list?
1: I use a to do list software.
0: What which software do you use?
1: Um, I, I'm a Apple person. I use Macs, and so I like the software called OmniFocus that lets me sync up all these things across. I can forward an email to it, and it you know shows up in my to do list. But there's a bunch of really good ones. That's just the one I've used for years and gotten used to, and it's easy to prioritize in that and flag and that kind of stuff. Um, And then the other thing I do is I, I, I schedule my week out. Um, So for example, Tuesdays are my administrative days. That's, you know, my, my regular admin meetings that I have scheduled are all coupled on Tuesdays. Um, Monday is my, research day, where I meet with all of my groups have, you know, my multiple lab meetings. Um, and then um, Friday afternoon, I usually hold open for writing and, you know, emergency meetings and, and that kind of stuff.
0: So your writing only happens once per week, or do you have, you kind of have this?
1: Thing? No, it ends up usually happening less than once a week. but. That's the block I hold open for that, that nobody can automatically schedule it into. But, you know, it turns out there's other urgent meetings or other urgent things that have to get done that get slotted in there. But it's usually enough over time to to make it happen.
0: And do you schedule, um, you know, your days, how do you start uh, your days with exercise or do you end them? How does that work? How does that fit in your life?
1: Yeah. Um, so there's the, the pre COVID answer and the um, uh, peri COVID answer. So, um, pre COVID, um, uh, so UCSF, we have two campuses, one at Mission Bay and one at Parnassus and I spend time at both of them. My basic lab is, and my clinic is at mission Bay. So used to be that three days a week, I would ride my bike, um, to the ferry, take the ferry over to mission Bay and then ride from the ferry to mission Bay. And that was good, you know, 35, 40 minutes of exercise a day, um, that I would get. Um, and then weekends, I spent a lot of time hiking and biking and running. Um, COVID has, uh, put a little bit of a damper on that routine in part because I haven't been taking public transportation with mask wearing and reduced scheduling and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, I, I run, I now run, um, five miles, three or four days a week. And I do that, you know, after dinner generally. You know, seven or eight o'clock or before dinner, but you know, after work.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. I could talk about this stuff all day, but I, I want to be respectful. Yeah, I, of
1: I am not, I can't exercise in the morning. It just, I, I, morning is actually my most productive thinking and writing time. So, um, you know, I get up and, and start working right away. or or get into the office and start working right away rather than exercising. It's not, for me, it's not a good time to exercise.
0: How early does your day start? Depends
1: on the day, but um, six or seven
0: generally. Fantastic. Um, Well, um, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time um, to, uh, you know, Discussed the paper with me and really enjoyed talking to you about your routine and how you get things done as well. It was wonderful. Uh, is there anything you want to, uh, any thoughts you want to leave our audience? Uh, I don't
1: think so. I appreciate, appreciate the, the time.
0: No, I really appreciate it. I look forward to doing this again very soon on, on some of your other papers. It's really interesting work that's being done in your, in, in your lab and in your group. So really looking forward to that. All right. Thanks, Hamid. Thank you.
1: Good to chat.